<laughs> Aaron is. Um, take your Bibles and, and turn on over to Acts 14. We've been uh, examining 14 for some weeks now. We're going to be back in it this morning. Acts 14. We've been sort of camping out at verses 21 to 23 for a few weeks, just examining and expositing on that text and, and just taking a look at it and got a, just a, maybe a quick summary or reminder of kind of where we've been over the last couple of weeks. That way we can all be uh, just kind of up to date uh, so, you know, we can travel together this morning in the right direction. Uh, quick summary, Paul and Barnabas visited Derby in Galatia. While they preached the gospel, uh, they preached the gospel there and, and made many disciples and planted a church or churches. We examined that in verse 21a, something we studied. Um, after planting in Derby, Paul and Barnabas returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. These were Galatian cities they had previously planted churches in, but due to persecution, uh, they were forced to leave. We kind of looked at that a little bit in 21b. Then when Paul and Barnabas returned to these cities, those three Galatian cities, they began to disciple the new believers. Luke recorded two things that they did in verse 22, which we learned are essential to the discipleship process. You know, we've been commanded to make disciples in all nations, and there's a way to do it. There's a biblical way to do that. And, uh, and so we learned about one of them last week. We focused on number one, and that was that they strengthened the souls of the disciples uh, that's a huge part of discipleship and raising up disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, that we would strengthen them, build them up. Luke didn't provide any details in that text for how they did this, but I was able to extract four things from Paul's epistles uh, that he utilized and, and used to strengthen disciples. Do you remember what those were? I called them out last week and kind of fleshed them out a little bit and talked about each one. Uh, one of them was prayer. We saw that in Ephesians 3, 14 to 16. One of them was the gospel, that we would strengthen the disciples of Jesus Christ with the gospel, that we would repeat the gospel to them over and over and over. We should never get tired of the gospel. We saw that in Romans 16, 25. And then communion, or we would call it the Lord's Supper. That is a way that disciples are strengthened. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. We focus on the death of Jesus Christ. In communion, we focus on his blood, and there is power in his blood. And so we are strengthened and built up through communion. And then lastly, fellowship is one that I pointed to. Uh, Christian fellowship, where Christians get together and mix it up and encourage one another and exhort one another, sometimes rebuke one another, whatever it is. We're investing in each other's lives. We're strengthening and discipling in that. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Those are the things that we talked about last week. And we went beyond that, and if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon. It'll help to, to make greater sense of where we're going today. But in any case, we're going to pick back up in verse 22 and uh, discover a number of things. Uh, one would be that second key discipleship thing. Like I said, there's two of them there in the text. We're going to look at that guy there, and then we're going to move into verse 23, and we'll discover two more things that they did. Uh, which have to do with long-term growth, uh, the long-term growth and protection of churches. So basically what I'm saying is when Paul and Barnabas went back to these Galatian cities, they did four things. Two of them have to do with discipleship, and two of them have to do with long-term growth 
and, and the protection of churches. And we're going to focus on those last three today. I'll, I'll pray one more time. I guess we prayed quite a bit, but I think we can't. I just think that we just need to keep praying and praying and praying and praying, right? Especially somebody like me who's so easily distracted. And I'll pray and then we'll begin with a, a question I want to put out to you. And then we'll get, kind of get to work. Father, uh, there's probably a few anxious hearts in this room this morning. I know mine is. And there's always uh, anxiousness and a nervousness and kind of weird things that come with preaching. And probably not all people experience. But every week I seem to be... Uh, plagued by those things, Lord, and I just pray that you would calm my heart and um, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit comes the fruit, the fruits of the Spirit. God, I pray that every person in this room, you'd make them a listener, a hearer, not just a listener, a hearer, but a doer. There's going to be some difficult subject matter this morning we're going to talk about. There's always so much error in our own lives, in our own thinking, in our own theology, in the world, and, and your truth is the truth, and it corrects those things, and it steers us on the right path. God, I pray that we would be open to the truth today, that we would not cling to tradition. It's not that traditions are bad, but they certainly can be if they're not grounded in the truth, and sometimes we We've been raised a certain way and, and we've been taught to experience certain things or to say certain things, to believe certain things. And then, and then all of a sudden the word of God is like a gigantic brick wall and just stops us. God, I pray that there wouldn't be anything this morning that would distract us from hearing from you and coming to know you in a greater way. That is really the goal. We would know you and glorify you and worship you. Open our hearts and minds to you this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so opening question. Sometimes I like to start with a question. This morning I definitely want to start with a question. And that question to you would be this. You don't have to answer it, um, you know, but you can ponder it for a moment. And the question would be this. If you were given an opportunity to encourage new churches with new believers that we're experiencing tribulation, difficulty, hardship, persecution, what would you say to them? Let's say that you've got, we've got the scenario playing out right in front of us in the Word of God here, and you've got three churches or a handful of churches that are back in these cities, and they're under great persecution and tribulation. The world hates Christians, and they're, they're suffering, they're you know, experiencing all sorts of tribulation and, and and guess what God calls your number and says I want you to go into every one of these churches and I want you to encourage these believers man they are under fire what would you say think about it uh, yeah. right well this is this is an opportunity wouldn't that be an opportunity some of us would, you know, immediately think, I wouldn't even go. You didn't call my number. There's no way I'm going to go speak in front of these churches and encourage these people. I, I just, I got stage fright, man. Or I just don't have the right words, or I, I don't, God wouldn't use me that way. Fear could strike us. Maybe we wouldn't want to do it. But if you had the opportunity, what would you say? Here's, here's some potential things that we might go in and try to encourage with. Would you go in and share your knowledge of the hypostatic union or some other mysterious doctrine? 
This is my one shot. I'm going to talk about that divine nature and, and man nature together. I know you're all hurting, but guess what? God, man. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I might, might go in and talk about that, right? Would you go before these people and unfold your theology of the end times, your eschatology? Well, let me tell you how the rapture is going to work out, and we're all going to get sucked up in the clouds and be given harps and play them, and I don't know what it, however it plays out. I mean, would that be the opportune time to go and talk about the end times, your eschatology? Bunch of hurting Christians. How about this? Would you... Stand before these different churches and, and, and maybe give them six practical ways to better enjoy their marriages and have greater intimacy and, and greater dialogue and greater communication. And would that what you do? Well, we're going to have a marriage summit. Dude, I had a guy threaten me with a knife the other day because I love Jesus. Well, let me tell you how to love your wife. I'm single. Well, I'm still going to tell you. Would you tell them, stand before these people, hurting, persecuted, tribulation, would you stand before them and tell them they can have their best life now? If they just repeat positive words to themselves, best life now, best life now, best life now. Or think positive thoughts repetitively. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in the midst of his agony. He said, Lord, please take this thorn from what? My flesh. And God replied, think happy thoughts, Paul. Say happy things like I have no thorn, I have no thorn, I have no thorn. Oh, that's not at all what God said to him. God said, my grace is sufficient. You're going to keep the thorn, but my grace is superior to the thorn, and you need it. You need to rely on me. Would you tell these people, okay, we know it's hard, it's difficult. I've come to tell you that I'm, despite your difficulty, I know it's hard. I know uh, 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 Freddie was killed last week because he's a believer. I know it's just, just dismal. It's tough. This is great tribulation. Would you say that despite all of that, I, 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 your ship is about to come in? Despite your horrific situation and circumstances, your ship is about to come in. I would hope that None of us would squander a moment like this with any of those subjects. Especially the ones that aren't biblical, like your best life now or the ship's about to come in. Paul and Barnabas had this tremendous opportunity. And they knew exactly what to say to these battered believers, these believers who were suffering immense intense tribulation. Now let's read verses 22 to 23 and then we're going to get to work. Are you with me? Do I have your attention? <laughs> Somebody went, ha, huh, like how could you not? <laughs> let's look at the text together. Verse 22, 14, 22, and 23. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Talked about that last week. Here it is. 
encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I love it. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What was this second discipleship based thing that they did in these cities. It's right there in the text. We would call it number two because number one was strengthening the souls. Number two would be they encouraged the disciples to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Right there in 22b. Seeing that the disciples were in these cities were worn down and hard pressed, they said in effect, a little paraphrase, keep Fighting the good fight of faith. Persevere through tribulation, for that is how we must enter the kingdom of God. Tribulation here means affliction in the original language, in the Greek. And in our particular context, how were these believers afflicted? Through anti-Christian persecution. Affliction can cover other things, disease and other forms of suffering, but our context seems to show that they were dealing with persecution. How do we know this? They were new believers in a hostile city. The guys who had led them to the Lord and, and ministered to them at first had been driven out of the city. The city did not like Christians. And so when you hear me say tribulation over and over and over, think of persecution. I love the straightforwardness of Paul and Barnabas here in this text. They didn't try to ease their pain through optimism. They didn't shower them with pleasantries. You know how we do that as Christians. Oh, oh, oh. They didn't offer up or give them or flood them with or shower them with prophetic propaganda. No. They didn't presume upon the will of God and make promises that God might not be willing to keep or write checks that God might not be willing to cash. Let me share with you a few popular and misleading statements that pastors use today to try to encourage people. You've probably heard these things, maybe more. There's a zillion of them out there. First one. Life might be hard right now, but know that God has a new season of blessing, favor, and prosperity right around the corner for you. That's huge today. You turn on your TV, you get a preacher on there, that's his mantra. Not all of them, but most. How about this one? You've got to encourage these people. The tribulation you are going through is meant to bring you to a higher and greater level of position. I know you're down here and it stinks, but God's preparing you for this. How about this one? Tribulation is caused by a lack of of favor. Get right with God and he will give you his favor and change your situation. Have you heard these? If you haven't, you haven't been listening because they are so pervasive in the church today. It's, it's insanity. Let me give you three reasons why these statements are wrong and dangerous. 
A, I already alluded to it, they presume upon the promises and will of God. I call this fortune telling. It is true that the Bible is filled with God's promises to and for his people. There is no doubt that many of the promises in the Bible, these promises that I'm referring to, are future promises like eternal kingdom promises. And many of these promises are spiritual promises that have to do with our spiritual deliverance, vitality, and future. You can amen. In the Bible, there are examples of how people lost everything and then gained it all back, plus a bag of chips. Think of Job. But Job's example is not a blueprint for every child of God who experiences tribulation. On the contrary, Job is Job, and what happened to him is unique and specific to him. Others in the Bible also, also other things, examples we see, there's others in the Bible who suffered greatly and never regained any quality of life whatsoever. Think about the prophet Jeremiah. He suffered tremendously. He's known as the weeping prophet. And in the midst of his suffering, God said this to him, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future. And yet, even after this promise was given to Jeremiah by God, he continued to suffer scorn and persecution. And according to Jewish tradition, he was killed in Egypt by being stoned. Hebrews 11.37 may corroborate this. Talks about many of the heroes of the faith, if you will, were stoned to death. Jeremiah received God's promises. He received his promised prosperity in these things and that promised future when he breathed his last breath and went to be with the Lord. Whenever I hear believers claim Jeremiah 29, 11 for themselves, I know the plan you have for me, I often say, I hope you're willing to suffer as Jeremiah suffered. I hope you are willing to wait until you die to receive those promises, the ones that he wrote about. If Jeremiah 29, 11 is your life verse, you might want to trade it in. But be sure to examine the historical background and context of your next selection before you hang it over your doorpost and make it your mantra and try to encourage everyone on the face of the earth with it. I am not rejecting God's promises to Jeremiah. What I'm telling you is they did not come during his physical life. And yet countless people take this verse and preach it and preach it over people who are suffering, making empty, false, potentially false promises. Context does not allow us to universalize this. And that's really one of my big points here. Not all of God's promises are universal and transferable. God gave the vast majority of his promises to specific individuals or groups like the Israelites for specific purposes. But this doesn't stop foolish and ignorant men from naming, claiming, and offering every promise God ever made to hurting people. I know you're broke right now and near bankruptcy, but Jeremiah 29, 11 guarantees that financial prosperity is on the way, brother. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of examples like this. 
These men presume that the Bible promises are for all people and they presume that it is God's will to fulfill them for all people. This kind of presumption is wrong and dangerous. It can actually drive people into absolute hopelessness and despair. Well, the preacher said God was going to do this, but God never did it. What do I do now? And when these wolves are questioned about the unanswered promises, do you know what they tell these poor people? They say it's probably because you didn't have enough faith. You have to have really, really deep faith to activate God's promises. They basically tell them that it's their fault. It's your fault. Jeremiah 29, 11 did not come true in your life because you do not believe hard enough. And then here comes that river of hopelessness. Here comes that flood of despair. Do not forget to add feelings of guilt, shame, and embarrassment as well because obviously this person's not as faith-filled as the pastor because he's got it all. This person doesn't have the kind of faith that all these other highly prosperous believers in the congregation have. So there's the guilt, there's the shame. I stink, I'm no good, my faith is worthless, I can't activate God's promises, but all of them can. Boy, I wish I was like them. Hopelessness can lead to depression. And depression is the number one cause of suicide in the U.S., Presumption is not only wrong and dangerous, but it is potentially deadly. Stay away from people who preach this trash. They are false teachers. They are wolves. That was the first reason. They presume upon the promises and will of God. The second, B, they lead people. These statements that these guys make, they lead people to put their hope in what God might do rather than in God himself. Yeah, right? God begins to be seen as the great I might. Rather than the great I am. God is treated like a magic genie. People pursue and hope in the blessings rather than the blesser. They want what God can give rather than God himself. This is idolatry. And how nicely does our family time focus just fit right into this perfectly. Our hope, blessed, our beloved, should always be in God. Not what in he can potentially do for us. Do not hope in what God might do, hope in what God did do in and through Jesus Christ. There is no greater or higher or more satisfying provision than him, that being Jesus Christ. And nothing can take him away from you. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Do not spend all your time hoping in what God might do. This is a distraction. Put your hope in what he did do in and through Jesus Christ. You will find no assurance 
in a might or maybe or hopefully belief system. It's guessing game faith based on an unpredictable, I hope he will do this kind of God. There is, however, great assurance in the Christian faith because it is built upon the rock-solid, immutable God who brings all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Hope in God, not in what he might do. And never forget that when you are in a season where you feel that there is lacking and you're in your season of tribulation and all these things, you may, not have, you may not have certain things that you need, but you have ultimately what you need, and that is God. He never leaves you nor forsakes you. Quit focusing on what will fix my problem. Focus on God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, we heard it earlier, he said, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus did not say eternal life is about heaven. Eternal life is about a smooth, trouble-free life. He said it is about knowing the only true God and the only begotten Son of God. God is therefore our highest treasure and ultimate inheritance. As Piper rightfully put it, God is the gospel. Stay away from those who encourage people to put their hope in what God might do. Stay away from those who direct people to pursue the blessings of God rather than God himself. That is just idolatry, friends. Those who do these things are false teachers and wolves. The third and final reason why these statements are wrong and dangerous. See, they trigger our natural desire to earn from God. You must understand, friends, let me get a drink. You must understand this basic fundamental truth. The default mode of every human heart is works righteousness. This is a result of the fall of man and sin. Sin has separated us from God who makes us whole. Without God, we are empty. Without God, we try to fill our emptiness with people, lovers, sex, money, booze, dope, busyness, possessions, and promotions, and the list is a zillion long. The world bombards us with many messages for how to, to get or obtain wholeness. It says we can obtain it through self-discovery and self-awareness. Look on the inside. This is the message of Oprah and the new spiritualists like Eckhart Tolle and Deepak Chopra, wolves. It says we can obtain it through self-improvement. This is the message of many psychologists and psychiatrists and many, many pastors are all about self-help. It says we can obtain it through reestablishing a relationship with God. Amen, right? Hold on. Through good deeds and good works. This is the message of false religion. All three of these examples are so pervasive in our culture and even in the church to some degree. Especially false religion. People in the U.S. believe that good deeds will get them God, heaven, wholeness, and a bag of chips. I recently watched a, uh, an exasperated mother. How many of you are mothers? How many of you have been exasperated with your children? 
this is confessional time here. <laughs> right? Recently watched an exasperated mother just grab her kid and just jerk this little rambunctious child right to her hip. Just sucked her in. It's amazing how moms can do that. They can get you across rooms like go, go gadget arm. It's like a fishing line. Pull him to the side. Grabbed this kid, ripped him right over here. Grabbed him. The kid was going ballistic crazy. Grabbed this little young girl, probably four or five years old. Looked her in the eyes and said, stop acting like a maniac. Do you want God to be angry with you and throw you into hell? And I was like, I love my mom. Mom, I love you. I, we didn't even know the Lord, and she never said anything like that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you went there. I mean, usually that's like the tenth thing down the line. You don't start with that when your kid takes you off. If they don't change it all, then you threaten them with hell, right? That was her first response. Blasted this kid, and this kid's all, no. And I was like, oh. This is the mode of thinking in the United States. We think that we can earn our way, and if we don't act like maniacs and meet balls and run around and create trouble and retail establishments, you know, somehow we'll gain heaven and God and all that that means. None of us would ever do this, right? We would never look our child in the face and say this. Well, maybe we should ponder the way that we parent for a moment. Let's think about our own parenting techniques for a moment. Let me ask you this, do we, maybe ask all of us, I know I've done it myself, but do we reward our children when they do good things? Yes. Do we discipline our children when they do bad things? Yes. It's pretty normal, right? By doing this, we train our kids to expect good things in return for good deeds and bad things in return for bad deeds. We also inspire and inflame their natural desire to perform for God. If we raise our kids in a merit system, they will also attempt to merit things from God. They will. Everything relates. How you raise them, rewards and discipline, translates right over into spiritual things, because everything is spiritual, and they begin to treat God the same way. If I do good things, God will give me good things. If I do bad things, mommy said I'll go to hell, God will put me in hell. It it just transfers over into all departments. We raise our kids in a merit system. They will also attempt to merit things from God. And guess what? This is works righteousness and religion. Now the key to keeping our children safe from this is the gospel. The gospel helps to guard us and our children against earning. The gospel just so plainly says you can't earn anything. You can't earn anything from God because you are a sinner. The gospel says our good deeds are filthy rags. The gospel says Jesus earned righteousness for us and God's favor towards us. Instead of raising our children in a merit system, we should raise them in the knowledge of their own sinfulness and in the knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our only hope, their only hope, the gospel. We need to help our children understand why they do bad things. Sinners. 
And we need to help them understand that Jesus is their only hope. Gospel. When our children do good deeds, we don't have to give them something in return every time. Instead of handing out rewards, we should teach them to praise God who is the giver of their time and talent. That's called worship, folks. And when our children sin, we need to teach them to confess to Jesus and to rely on the grace of God in Jesus. This is what it means to raise children according to the gospel. If we leave the gospel out of our parenting, our kids will become prideful performers or fatigued failures. Works, righteousness, earning always produces either of two things, pride or despair. Those who succeed at doing good deeds are filled with pride. And those who struggle and fail at doing good deeds are filled with despair. And guess what? Here's the ultimate wake-up call. Both types of people are lost. Neither of them has Jesus. Believe me when I say this, the last thing we want to do is train our kids to be earners with God. Whether that be earning his love, salvation, or favor, or blessings. Those who teach that we can earn from God, or that tribulation is due to a lack of his favor, are nothing more than false teachers and wolves. Stay away from them. Now, as we can see, Paul and Barnabas did not attempt to give the disciples in Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch a false sense of hope through promising prosperity and goodness. If I could pick one verse that drives a nail through the heart of the prosperity gospel, it is 1422. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what we need to hear. Now, what Paul and Barnabas actually did here was give the disciples the greatest encouragement possible. You might be thinking, what a bunch of killjoys. They could have given them a better, more promising word from God. They gave them the ultimate encouragement here. Well, it's just hard to see. How were these people encouraged by that statement? Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How is that an encouragement? Several ways. Number one, Paul and Barnabas affirmed their faith by pointing to their tribulation. Paul and Barnabas affirmed their faith by pointing to their tribulation. Tribulation is a sign that affirms the presence of true saving faith. Those who love and follow Jesus will experience various forms of tribulation, persecution. Why? Because the world hates Jesus and us, John 15, 18 to 19. When we live as Christ lived, we should expect to receive the same things he received. He was reviled and despised. He was harassed and persecuted. He was even killed. The world cannot, under any circumstances, accept his kind of love his kind of mercy, and his kind of grace. Why? Because the world hates him. Oh, no, it doesn't. They like him. No, they don't. 
Since he experienced tribulation, those who love and follow him will also experience tribulation. So tribulation affirms true saving faith because those who have true saving faith will experience tribulation. That's Paul's point. How many Christians are there out there who believe that tribulation is always tied to God's displeasure or anger with them? Prosperity preachers are primarily responsible for creating that line of thinking. They teach over and over, if you love, obey, and serve God, your life will be smooth, your life will be prosperous, your life will be trouble-free. But verse 22 pretty much destroys that line of thinking, doesn't it? Verse 22 says that those who love and obey and serve God will have a life that is marked by tribulation. And guess what? The apostles rejoiced in that reality. They thought of tribulation as a badge of honor because tribulation meant that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 5.41. How else were they encouraged by this? encouragement their faith was affirmed man tribulation means you got true saving faith because those who have true saving faith will experience it how else Paul and Barnabas affirmed that they were headed in the right direction they said that it is through tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God guess what friends the narrow path that leads to life in the kingdom of God is marked with tribulation and suffering those who find the path by the good grace of God and travel the path by the good grace of God will experience tribulation. Tribulation then becomes a road sign that affirms that the traveler is headed in the right direction, headed on the right path. Yeah, you got the fruits of the Spirit and all these other dimensions to it, but tribulation is, is a road sign. Let me give you some examples. Jesus himself identified many of these affirming road signs. Examples. Road sign number one. Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are pierced, persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who pursue righteousness, relationship with Jesus Christ, live the way that he's commanded, live that gospel out. Guess what? They will be persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's a road sign. Man, if you, that's the life you live. Blessed are you when you experience persecution, because it's going to come. Road signs, like you're traveling down the highway, there's a sign that says, hey, we're blessed because we're experiencing persecution. We're headed in the right direction. Road sign number two, John 15, 18, big one. If the world hates you, Jesus speaking, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Big old roadside right on the highway of faith. Right on that narrow path of faith, I should say. The world is going to hate you. Are you experiencing that? Guess what? You're going in the right direction. Roadside number three, John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. Big old sign right there on that road. This path of faith, this narrow path that leads to life, that leads to the kingdom of God is marked by these things. These signs show you that they are affirming that you are headed in the right direction. What an, an encouragement this was. They, Paul and Barnabas never tried to steer these disciples away from tribulation or the mission of God. 
They strengthened them and encouraged them to fight the good fight of faith. They affirmed their faith by pointing out the trajectory of their faith. They said, in effect, tribulation is the sign that you are headed in the right direction towards the kingdom of God. Stay the course. Do not turn away. What tremendous encouragement they received here. Just by saying, man, cling to the faith, stick to the faith. It is through tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. They were in the midst of tribulation. Paul and Barnabas said right to them, basically, you're on the right path. Stick to the faith, don't give up. Now, think of that right now in this very moment. What a perfect thing to encourage a bunch of beat up new believers with. Six ways to have a better marriage. No, how about stick to the faith? How about fight the good fight? I know it's tough, but guess what? You're on the right path. Because the path of faith is marked by tribulation. It is guaranteed. What an encouragement they gave them here. Going in the right direction. Keep traveling forward. You see how that verse is such a phenomenal encouragement now? Affirming their faith, affirming the trajectory of their faith. How wonderful. Now let's quickly cover the last two things Paul and Barnabas did in Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. Even though Paul and Barnabas had to move on, even though they had to go to new places to preach the gospel, they didn't return to these cities to give these disciples a quick encouragement or a pep talk or a spiritual inoculation and just pop in to say a couple of nice things and then get out of there. They came with a long-term plan for their growth and protection. And that leads to the third and fourth things Paul and Barnabas did in these cities. The third thing we see from the text is they appointed elders in every church. Verse 23a. They appointed elders in every church. The elders they appointed were to become the shepherds, the under-shepherds who would nourish and guard the flock in each of these churches. They were the pastors, if you will. They were to continue the work that Paul and Barnabas did during both of their visits to these people. To continue in that same vein of ministry. They were to become their teachers and encouragers and guardians. They were to become the ones who would boldly proclaim the gospel in their cities and train these people to live the gospel out in these very harsh and difficult cities. Isn't that beautiful how 23a says they appointed elders? Man, you talk about loving the church. Paul and Barnabas could have easily, with their kind of level of skill and, you know, prominence they could have easily just popped right in and gave a word oh no they loved these believers so much that they appointed for them elders who would take care of them hence the reason why we have elders in churches but before installing these guys Paul and Barnabas did one last thing which is number four they prayed 
fasted and committed the newly appointed elders to the Lord. Verse 23b. You see it right there? They didn't just pick, hey, Joe, hey, Sammy, hey, Biff. Come over here. Guess what? You're up. No, they had to have had some conversations with the other believers and said, who is it amongst you that exhibits these particular qualities? The believers would have said, well, we, we, we saw Biff over there and he's, he's a solid dude. Prayed, they fastened and committed the newly appointed elders to the Lord, verse 23b. Paul and Barnabas did all they could to make sure that the men they selected, the men that the church selected, were God's men. This is huge. You don't just put this guy or that guy in a position like this. Remember what I said last week, if you were with us, like priest, like people. The people become like the priest, or in our case, the elder. If he is screwed up, the people will become screwed up. I'm not saying that we're not screwed up by sin in a general sense. We all are. The elder is. But if he is wrong in his doctrine, if he is wrong in his understanding of the gospel, you're going to have a lot of trouble. He could very well come in and begin to reverse the work that Paul and Barnabas began with. People become like the one who teaches. And that is a thought that haunts me. Am I doing it right? Oof. Whoa. That's a burden. That's a heavy burden heavy burden. I'm not saying that pastoring is a heavy burden. It's a wonderful thing to do. But to know that you are influencing people, shaping and forming them, that's a massive thing. Brad, they prayed, they fasted, they committed the newly appointed elders, 23. Hey. The men they sought to appoint had to meet the qualifications of an elder listed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, or Titus 1, 6 to 9. These things may not have been penned by this point, but I guarantee you the Holy Spirit had laid upon Paul's mind and understanding and theology what it would take to have the right guy. These qualifications that Paul recorded later, he probably knew them then. They couldn't just pick anyone. And not only did these men have to meet those requirements that we see in those particular passages, they had to be prayed over with fasting, after they were a, after that, after they were prayed over, selected and, and prayed over and, and anointed, if you will, and appoint, you know, before all of that, then they could be appointed to the ministry. And Paul and Barnabas left their beloved, these believers in these cities, in the hands of godly and capable men, and more importantly, in the hands of the sovereign God who brings all everything that he begins in the life of one of his children, he brings those things to completion, his work. He entrusted these believers to the hands of these elders, more importantly, to the mighty hands of God. And that's how the text ends. That's how our passage ends. That wraps up our exposition of 1422 to 23. Strengthened, encouraged, 
appointed men who would take the lead and continue to, to strengthen and continue to encourage and continue to grow and pour into and to disciple and pray over and guard and protect God's people. I have a handful of closing exhortations for you. Come right from the text. We are commanded to make disciples in all nations. Matthew 28 makes it clear. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are to teach them to obey Christ's commands. And we are to strengthen and encourage them. May we take seriously our duty and serve the Lord and one another in all joy. Disciples are to make disciples. We are in the business, if you will, lack of a better words, of multiplying disciples. And how is it done? Train them to obey all that Christ commanded. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We continue to strengthen and encourage them. Is it broader than that? Yes. But there's a blueprint for discipleship right there. And guess what? It's a biblical one. Shouldn't we be biblical? My exhortation to all of us, encouragement to all of us, is that we would take that duty seriously and serve the Lord with joy. Serve one another with joy. Another exhortation. Stay away from prosperity preachers and their demonic propaganda. Trust in what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. Pursue God himself. He is a person who loves you. Christ died that you may know him. That is eternal life, that you would know the one and true God. Worship the blesser, not the blessings. Think about your relationship with God in a parallel sense to a relationship with someone you love. If you were to only want what that person who you love, if you were to only want what they can give you at all times, what would that be like? Isn't that what I'm talking about here that we do to God We love God, we claim to love God, and yet all we ever do is expect from him and want from him instead of wanting him. I can tell you one thing. There are times where I feel that way in my house. I just want my wife to do what I want her to do and do these things and all that. And you know what? She's gracious and she's kind. She's compassionate. She loves me. She loves the Lord. She serves me. But if that's all I ever wanted from her, how would that make her feel? Just keep giving! No, I am to want and long for her. What might God feel if we run around as his children and all we ever do is seek after his blessings and what he can give us and cry out to him for all these things when all along he's saying, I am your greatest prize. And yet all you want are the little things that I can give you instead of. Worship the blesser, not the blessings. It's just idolatry, friends. Just exalting all the little things above the one who gives them. Another exhortation, if you have children, raise them in the gospel. Teach them about sin 
about their sinful nature. Teach them about the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Teach them to be confessional and to rely on Jesus alone. Teach them to worship God, not rewards. Teach them to acknowledge that God gives them the ability to do anything. He even gives them breath. Teach them to worship God, not stuff. Another exhortation, if you're living the gospel and suffering tribulation, a.k.a. persecution, because you're living the gospel, rejoice. The trouble you're experiencing is a testimony to your faith. And it shows that you are headed towards the kingdom of God. I love that. That's the exact encouragement that they gave these battered and beaten believers in these cities. Stay the course, friend. Stay the course, beloved. Hold fast. Continue forward in the Lord's might and strength. The antithesis is that is to be claiming that you're a person of faith and to never experience any tribulation, tribulation, persecution, or any of these things. What faith are you living? Are there no road signs saying you're in persecution, you're being persecuted because you're on the right path? If you don't have any of those road signs, you need to have a come to Jesus meeting and say, why is that? Am I not being faithful to proclaiming the gospel? I'm not talking about being a jerk with the faith. I'm not talking about beating people up with it. You brought that on yourself. If you are faithful to the gospel in proclaiming it, sharing it with people, and living it out, its implications, you're going to take some heat, man. That's just all there is to it. You are a countercultural person. You look so stinking differently from this world, people are going to take notice. And since you're not assimilating into what they're doing and belong to their club, they're going to get ticked. And they're going to question and roast you and persecute you. And, and maybe it's light stuff. The guys at my work do it all the time. They say their little stupid comments, you know, and whatever. Every time I hear one of those things, I think, there's a little baby road sign. Go ahead, say more. You live in the gospel and suffering, persecution, tribulation because you're living it. Rejoice. And then our last exhortation. This is Thanksgiving week. This Thursday, we will gather in our homes or in our friends' homes or in our relatives' homes to enjoy a meal. Don't forget to do this. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. It's because of him that you know Christ. It's because of him that you have breath and everything else. Don't ever lose sight, friends, of showing great love and gratitude to the Father. Don't, don't do it. We need to be thankful in all circumstances. This is a wonderful time of year for us to just praise God. 
to the difficulty, to the ease, for the comfort, for the harshness of life at times. Be thankful in all circumstances. Gather together in your homes and worship Him. Praise Him. He is worthy of our praise. As we enter into a time of communion, we can ponder all of these things. If you're a gal, you can multitask, so you'll be able to think about more things than one. If you're a guy, you'll camp out on one, and that's it. It's all she wrote. Let's squander this time of communion with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You're coming to his table to dine with him. And don't you forget about what communion represents. The bloody, broken sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The new covenant of love and grace and eternity. What a wonderful thing he's done for us. What a spectacular thing he's done for us. Give thanks to him during this time. Remember his finished work. We're not earners. We don't have to go out and do anything beyond follow Jesus. Love Jesus. You can't earn anything with him. It's all done. He said it is finished. It is And so may we remember those things as we take these elements and may we just have an amazing time at like this temporary dinner table, right? Because what we're doing by going through this action and doing this together is we're preparing ourselves for our future banquet with God. This is just like a little glimpse of that. And and believe me, he's going to have more than bread and juice at his table in the future. We take these things in remembrance of what he did. It's a future glimpse of where we're going. And may we praise him. And I want to remind you that if you do not love Christ, if you have not turned from your sin and trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't take communion. It's for those people who have done that. Okay? Don't be offended by that. Just It's an ordinance that he established for his church and for his people. And I pray, and I pray that you would come to know the Lord. I pray that you would, God would reveal to you himself in that he is the highest treasure imaginable. That he is so much greater, that Christ is superior to anything and to everything. No other God, no other way. He is our ultimate satisfaction. You can't get better than Jesus. I pray that he would make that known to you. Father, thank you for this time. May we enjoy sitting at your table and being with you. Call to mind these things that we've learned, and may we remember the tremendous price you paid through your blood, broken body. You took our sin upon you and took it away from us, that you clothed us in your righteousness. We don't have righteousness. You gave us righteousness. These things were accomplished at the cross. May we reflect on them, know that they are a finished work, that we who have received them may simply enjoy who you are in your presence for eternity. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.